Hey now, it is podcast time. I am Tommy, I am the host, and I got a good one for you today. You know that everyone wants to talk about GameStop and what's going on in the short sale market with the hedge fund bros. I mean, how much fun is that going to be? It's a powerhouse episode. Start with a quick segment on GME, and then segment two is an action-packed update on Russia collusion, the special counsel, and the final declassification dump from the departing administration. I am sure that you're as excited about this as I am. So, without delay, let's open up the lounge for 2021, episode four, Stop Now Go. Backstory on GameShop. And this is some fascinating shit. Now, I'm not an options trader. This is not my expertise. Usually the show features topics that I'm familiar with, that I can put some sauce on. Although, if you listened to last week's football show, you probably questioned my self-proclaimed expertise. Eep. That was not great. Anyway, back to GameStop. As it was explained to me, this has been something that's been simmering for over a year. And the point of origin appears to be all the way back in September of 2019 on the now infamous Reddit board r slash Wall Street Bets. Some anon who goes by the handle Deep Fucking Value posted a screen cap of his long dated calls on GameStop. I am told that the acronym for that form of investing is LEAPS, L E A P S long-term equity anticipation securities. At the time, all of the feedback on Deep Fucking Values leaps was negative. Go figure, negative comments on an internet message board. But this Deep Fucking Value dude, he's a real character, and starting in September 2019, about once a month he would come back to Wall Street Bets board, and he'd post his position, and he tagged it with YOLO GME. And the feedback on his YOLO GME position remained consistently negative. The conventional wisdom was that GameStop was a dying retailer. They were the next blockbuster video on a doom path to bankruptcy. Except the conventional wisdom wasn't really accurate. Now there's a surprise. In reality, GameStop was in a pretty stable financial position. Publicly traded companies are required to release a quarterly 10Q form of their financials, and it seems that the GameStop financials showed they had significant amounts of cash on hand. Their balance sheet wasn't out of whack at all, but their stock was stuck trading down around 4 bucks per share. Conventional wisdom more powerful than the actual 10Qs. The hedge funds, apparently, were all in on that conventional wisdom because they were shorting the fuck out of GameStop. That's probably a bit oversimplified, and I'm fine with that. I'm not going to pretend to have a detailed understanding of the options market, but I do get the gist of it. Shorting a stock is when an investor borrows shares and then immediately sells them. And it does seem like a really wacky concept. Hey bro, can I borrow a few shares? But that's what the short sellers are doing. The goal is to borrow the share, then immediately sell it. Then you return to the market later and buy the shares back at a cheaper price when you need to return them to the dude you borrowed them from. And you get to keep the difference. 
So obviously, short selling is all based on betting that a company's value is going to drop. That's what makes it kind of a dick move. Hey GameStop, I bet you're gonna go broke. I'm gonna borrow a bunch of shares and then sell them, then circle back and scoop them up after you tank. I mean, hedge bros are like someone that bets the don't pass line and craps. I bet you're gonna roll a seven. You could get slapped around for doing that kind of shit in a dice game. But on Wall Street, it's common practice. And if the hedge bros are right and the company value does go down, they pocket the difference. In this GameStop scenario, the hedge funds borrow GME shares at, say, four bucks and immediately sell them. They're hoping the company value will go down so they can buy the shares back later for $1, hence pocket $3 per share. That's the short game. But something went completely off the rails with GameStop. Somehow, the short interest was over 100% of the total shares. What deep fucking value apparently realized way before anyone else was the short interest was more like 140% or maybe even more. The hedge funds had somehow sold more shares than were actively traded. And I'm told that the term for how many shares that are actively traded is called the float. And when the short interest is greater than the float, the short is in a terrible risk position. And by the time everyone caught on to what deep fucking value had realized back in September 2019, it was speculated that the hedge bros were sitting on a short interest that could be as high as 300% of the float. The theory was the short sellers were trading as if GameStop was certain to go bankrupt and they wouldn't actually ever have to return the shares that they borrowed. Yeah, whoops. And by September 2020, about a year after Deep Fucking Value first dropped his truth nuke on the conventional wisdom, other people finally started catching on. And then the GameStop price started to creep up. Uh, who can really say what causes something to go viral? But when the supernova happens, it happens quick. And it went from one remote corner of the internet on that Wall Street bets board to a global phenomenon and perhaps a history-changing event. The hedge funds are in deep here. I mean, how in the fuck are they supposed to cover those shorts now that GME is trading at hundreds of dollars per share? The hedge bros are stuck, and the spot is they've got to buy at any price because they're over the float. Any share that's available is like gold because they collectively owe more than are available. Again, gotta pause to reflect on what a goofy concept this is. Traders borrow shares and then sell them, and then they can actually sell more shares than are available. What the fuck are y'all doing? But that's what set the table for the squeeze. Retail traders can now drive the price of GameStop up and put the squeeze on the short sellers. I am told that what's happening with GameStop is technically a gamma squeeze. And there's some deep weeds, I guess, on what Greek letters and options trading means. I don't know anywhere near enough about it to discuss it. But the ultimate result is that GameStop price goes up, and folks like Deep Fucking Values start hitting their call strike price. So the market makers have to start settling those positions, which means they have to deliver the shares. And that's when all hell broke loose. Trading was halted for a time, then the retail apps shut down the public's ability to buy, market officials started talking about having to allow the investment firms to recalibrate their positions. 
I mean, the little guy hauled off and socked the hedge fund bros right in the fucking mouth. And elites don't react well to that kind of thing. Even though nothing illegal had happened, I mean, an internet message board can discuss stocks and recommend positions as much as they'd like. What's not supposed to be legal is manipulating the market. All of that halting, brokers only allowing retail traders to sell their position, that's pretty fucked. Um, what a transparent display of how the system is completely rigged. And if some rando sharp comes along and unrigs it, the elites are going to try and stamp out the sharps. I mean, the hedge fund that has drawn the most attention in this saga is Melvin, and apparently they had almost $3 billion in exposure on this. It was reported that several other hedge funds jumped in and provided Melvin funds so they could cover their losses. And it's hard to say what this means for the future. Melvin was legally allowed to run up billions in risk on these shorts, and Deep Fucking Value was legally allowed to show Wall Street bets how to bury Melvin in their own bullshit. Is the SEC and the regulatory apparatus going to step in here? And if they do, will it be to defend Deep Fucking Value? Or will it be to defend Melvin? I don't want to be too cynical here. Maybe we're onto something and this is a catalyst event for positive change. Either way, as good fella Chris Olson said, nothing brings people together like the mutual hatred of hedge fund douchebags. How about a Russia collusion segment to cap the show today? First off, is everyone even aware that a new special counsel was appointed to investigate the FBI and Mueller's team? I feel like there's been almost no mention of it, but it's hard to know how many people are dialed into something like that. Obviously, I understood it wasn't going to be fashionable, but I thought there would be some more buzz about it. Still, incredible story. So here's the sequence. Mueller completed his work in March of 2019, and of course it included a grand total of zero indictments for links or coordination between Trump and Russia. None, zilch, nada. The original premise for the investigation was severely and fatally flawed, and the Mueller report itself was finally released in April 2019. For years, that investigation had been used as a tool to block any concurrent investigation into how the FBI had come to believe that Russia collusion could possibly be a thing. And a couple of weeks after that shield was finally gone, U.S. Attorney John Durham was promptly assigned to investigate the Russiagate hoax and those who perpetrated it. The Attorney General wrote in a letter that that work was expected to be completed in the summer of 2020, but the Rona basically stalled the process out they couldn't get grand juries convened. There were issues with coordinating witness interviews. Same thing happened to pretty much every trial attorney across the country. So in October, faced with the reality that the investigation was not going to be completed on the original timeline, and with the election coming up, the attorney general determined he needed to protect the integrity of the investigation by converting Durham to a special counsel. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Regular old U.S. attorneys serve at the will of the president. When administrations change, it's not uncommon for most or all of the U.S. attorneys to be replaced. William Barr was not going to let the investigation just get swept away. 
So on October 19th, 2020, the Attorney General signed Order Number 4878, and that appointed John Durham as a special counsel. The official charge was to investigate, quote, whether any federal official, employee, or other person or entity violated the law in connection with the intelligence, counterintelligence, or law enforcement activities directed at the 2016 presidential campaigns, individuals associated with those campaigns, and individuals associated with the administration of President Donald J. Trump, including, but not limited to, Crossfire Hurricane and the investigation of special counsel Robert S. Mueller III, end quote. Before the conversion, Durham had already rung up one attorney from Mueller's special counsel for forging emails, stands to reason that there are more indictments in the barrel. There would be no other purpose to appoint Durham as a special counsel and then give him the authority to prosecute anyone from the FBI or Mueller's team, unless they were already really damn sure they had more prosecutions in the process. For whatever it's worth, my expectation was also that this would have been done by the summer of 2020, but pandemic and whatnot. A final note on the Durham special counsel appointment, Attorney General William Barr made another important decision. Even though Durham was appointed in October, Barr opted to delay sending out the standard notifications that a special counsel had been appointed until after the election. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. The Department of Justice is not supposed to make the kind of announcements that can impact an election really close to an election. I know, MAGA World gets completely indignant about that. Apparently, they wanted Barr to leak info and make the special counsel a sensationalized story. Of course, that's after Team Trump pitched an absolute fit for the way the Democrats leaked and sensationalized the Mueller investigation. As always, far left, far right, the partisan extremists, they have the exact same pathology. They both want to use the Department of Justice as a political weapon. Thankfully, Bill Barr was not going to run that program. I'm not particularly fond of Barr. His work with Bush Sr. was pretty fucking gross. But here, in this matter, he fulfilled his role as Attorney General honorably. And on December 1st, 2020, after the election, Barr did provide notification that a special counsel had been appointed. Is that news? Are people generally aware that that happened? I don't know. Some quick technical stuff. Uh, Durham was appointed under the same three statutes as Mueller. From Alexis Geeks, those are 28 USC 509, 510, 515. Both the Durham and Mueller appointment letters contain the same critical phrase, Quote, if the special counsel believes it is necessary and appropriate, the special counsel is authorized to prosecute federal crimes arising from the investigation of these matters, end quote. That allows John Durham to bring federal prosecutions without interference from anyone in Biden's Department of Justice. For whatever it's worth, I don't think Joe Biden has any particular need or interest in shutting down the Durham special counsel. Joe can let folks like Andy McCabe and Peter Strzok twist in the breeze. He's not really tied into their DX shenanigans. Joe Biden has criminal exposure, but that's all with his family doing those deals in the Ukraine, Iran, and China. That's a story for another day. Let's cover the last Trump administration D-class dump and then get out of here.
On his way out the door, the Don did declassify one last group of documents. We got the dump, folks. We got the documents! They've been testing the frogs, making them gay! I think the most interesting part of the release was a Christopher Steele 302 from September of 2017. 302s are the official FBI notes that they take during a subject interview. Here, the subject is the infamous Christopher Steele. Yes, author of the Steele dossier. We've known that the dossier was fake from essentially the moment Buzzsprout released it. Well, I guess I should say reasonable people have known it's fake for years now. In 2017, the FBI repeatedly called it unverified in all of their congressional testimony. Steele got sued in civil court and admitted it was all secondhand info. He had no idea if any of it was true. Over the summer, we learned that the primary subsource that was giving the info to Steele was Mr. Igor Danchenko. And it turns out that Danchenko wasn't even in Russia. No, he was working at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. I mean, how kick-ass is that? The Steele dossier was written by Igor Danchenko and Christopher Steele in Washington, D.C. You see, what had happened was the Clinton campaign stealth hired Steele to make up the fake Russian intelligence reports. But Steele didn't actually have any contacts in Russia. So instead, he went to Washington, D.C., the dishonesty capital of the universe. And there he found Igor Danchenko. And together, they made up the fairy tales that became the Steele dossier. Well, Steele didn't just find Danchenko. Steele was introduced to Danchenko by Fiona Hill. Yes, the very same Fiona Hill that testified in the Ukraine impeachment carnival. Fiona was the Russian and Eurasian uh, envoy to the National Security Council. I can't say that she perjured herself in her impeachment testimony, but she sure as shit strategically omitted mention of her relationship with Steele and Danchenko. Fiona wasn't exactly forthcoming in her testimony about her relationship with the dynamic dossier duo. <laughs> it is incredible, right? But that Fiona Hill angle is a little deeper and it's probably a story for a different day. We've already got plenty here with Danchenko and Steele. Check out this spin move from Igor. After it was revealed that he was the primary subsource for the dossier, even though that was impossible because he was just a dude living in Washington, D.C., working in DuPont Circle, Danchenko lawyered up and sent a cease and desist letter to the White House. Quick, pivot to the orange man bad defense. <laughs> Danchenko claimed that Trump's tweets about him were endangering his life. Of course, the Don was using social media to point at what a fraud this whole thing was. Danchenko went on to say he was not a Kremlin operative and that Trump was slandering him with the stigma of being a Russian spy. Um, Igor, you were the one working with Steele to construct this fairy tale based on your alleged information from Russian intelligence. We know you weren't a Kremlin operative or a Russian spy. That's the whole point. You're a Brookings liberal think tank guy who has no inside information on Trump activities in Russia. Yet, here you are working with Chris Steele to make up this dossier. It's kind of hard for me to think of you as a victim, but what an amazing spin. And of course, it does get some traction in clown world. What little of the team good media that even covered this Danchenko development 
they all went with the evil orange man slandering and endangering poor innocent Igor Danchenko. Such good stuff. Anyway, with the benefit of this last release, we can really see the mosaic of how the dossier came to be now. Clinton's inner circle came up with the idea of the Russia collusion smear on Trump. They brought it to Mark Elias of Perkins Coie. Mark tapped Chris Steele to come up with the phony intelligence product. Steele connected with Danchenko via Fiona Hill. Danchenko made up some stories about Trump and his campaign. Steele compiled those stories into his dossier, and then they fed the phony info into the FBI via Bruce Orr. Or passed it through to the DX dynamic duo, Andy McCabe and Peter Strzok, who then helped present it to the FISA court as legit intelligence so they could get a two-hop warrant on Carter Page and spy on the entire Trump campaign. Hey, tell me again how I should be hysterical because Viking guys stormed the Capitol. Oh, how fucking stupid are some people. If you want to see a real attack on democracy... Look at what the Obama administration did here. This is a stunning abuse of power. The levels of dishonesty and fraud are off the charts. But there's more, because there's always more with this shit show. The final declassification dump included a new revelation. Steele was not just peddling Danchenko's made-up stories. Oh no, no. Chris Steele was also passing info that other people had made up into the FBI. The 302 also shows that Steele was peddling information that Jonathan Weiner of the U.S. State Department had given him. Uh, State Department officials conspiring to feed fake information to the FBI via Chris Steele. It's so badass. Steele makes clear in his 302 he was in possession of a report that the State Department had written in April of 2016, and that report included the allegations about the Miss Universe pageant, the Ritz-Carlton, and the urine. Yes, we have the point of origin for the PP paper. Surprise, it came from Hillary Clinton's former State Department colleagues. In April of 2016, Clinton associate Cody Shearer went to Istanbul and met with an Armenian named Ruslan Mansimov. And the story they came up with was that Mansimov was a Russian intelligence officer and knew of secret recordings of the Trump golden shower scene from the Moscow hotel. Steele told the FBI that longtime Clinton insider Sidney Blumenthal was the one who approached Scheer with the plan to make up the Russian smear on Trump. Then they laundered it through John Weiner at State to give it credibility. Weiner passed it to Steele, who passed it to the FBI as corroboration of what Danchenko was also hearing. It's just one giant circle jerk, and it always has been. It's so incredible. Declassified documents indicate that intel was received, that Team Clinton was very concerned that her private email story wasn't going away, and her campaign was desperately trying to come up with the counter-narrative. And the counter-narrative they came up with was Russia collusion. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Not that anyone on Team Good is going to care. They just move on to the next giant lie that becomes the narrative of the day. 
As always, it helped that there was a completely dishonest media that was willing to work around the clock to misinform the public and keep the Underton window open. Russia collusion. What an amazing ride it has all been. All right, everyone. See ya. Peace.